Today's episode of the Metrology Today podcast was brought by the good folks over at metrology.net. Better, cheaper, faster? They say pick any two. You can't have all three. But when it comes to automation with metrology.net, you get all three. Better, cheaper, faster automation with ISO IEC 17025 measurement uncertainties. Find out more at www.metrology.net. Welcome to the Metrology Today podcast. My name is Ryan Egbert and I am your host today. And on the show today, we have Stephen Purier. Now, Stephen has had a long career in calibration and metrology, and he's going to go into all of that in the actual episode. But I came across Stephen on LinkedIn, actually. And that's because Stephen writes some very interesting, thought-provoking material revolving around metrology, but in an interesting, creative writing fashion. To give you an example, one of my favorite articles by him was entitled, I just re-encountered Lord Kelvin, this time in the dark matter neighborhood of all places. I've had a lot of material I've read about metrology over the years that just is really dry and in some cases over my head and I don't understand the application, you know, and I think Stephen really breaks down some of those walls and, and makes metrology interesting for the wider audience. And so I'm super excited to have him on the show today. And without further ado, here is the episode with Stephen Perrier. Thank you for listening. Well, Stephen, it's a pleasure. Welcome to the podcast. How are you this fine 2022? I'm very well, and I, as a, I'm very honored to be here with you. Uh, some of your uh, previous guests uh, are people I've looked up to for years, so it's totally cool to be uh, sitting in a chair talking to you. It, it's very weird talking to some of those people because I I have admired yeah. them as well. So it's sometimes overwhelming. But I, you know, we'll talk about your. I'll let you talk about your background in metrology here in a second, but. With you coming on, I enjoy your creative work, the the way that you present material, and we'll talk about that, you know, throughout the episode. But uh, I enjoy reading the stuff that you do on LinkedIn, and and uh, we'll remind people to follow you on LinkedIn if you're okay with that. Of course, I'm okay with it. Um, and thank you very much for your support. Um, hearing back from anybody that reads my stuff, uh, it's it's a pleasure. It's it it's very. Um, you know, we were talking about before starting this podcast where it's a challenge to make metrology interesting to, you know, teens or, or people that we want to entice to get into the field. I feel the same way about the creative writing that you do. It's very difficult to find someone that can make metrology subjects interesting or and also kind of go beyond, you know, what's right in front of you with your day-to-day cow. You're talking about some of those, those bigger, you know, uh, physicist-type thought processes and some of those and they're really interesting i think it's a good a good way to stretch the mind outside of like i was saying our day-to-day thank you ryan um yeah it stretches my mind too and sometimes it stretches a little bit too far and i just find myself wandering off in the wilderness um that's one of the cool things about writing is 
if you edit yourself, you'll you'll find. Wait a minute. What am I talking about this for? You know, when you're writing it, it makes it all makes it all hangs together. When you go back and read it again, some of it is pretty solid. Some of it's like, ooh, this is zany. Get this out of here. Well, now that you mention it, do you ever feel like (laughs) sometimes in the industry people make our or try and make things too almost too difficult or too technical? You know, I, I, when we got approached to be a part of the magazine, they were asking us specifically to be very one-on-one talk to the average everyday person, you know, and, and I can, I can see that in a lot of our, the writing that is out there. Right. Um, I absolutely agree. Part of it's cultural. Um, one of the things that I wanted to make sure to talk to, uh, to you and to your audience about is for anybody who's interested in learning more about uncertainty analysis, um, for years and years, in fact, for decades, the standard was, oh, go read the gum, which is the guide to uncertainty and measurement from the ISO. Well, it took me years, it took me many years to find out that that wasn't the only, um, that wasn't not only, not only the only document that explained uncertainty analysis, but there was by far, far superior renditions that were done later once people took a look at the gum and, and realized, oh, this is this is technically correct. It's it's a it's it's terrible. Yeah. So I, I can tell you right now, if you go to a UCAS, which is the United Kingdom Accreditation Service, and look up their document M3003, it's completely superb and it's it follows in the footsteps of the gum but but corrects all the problems with the with the fact that you can't tell what the hell the gum is trying to say it's so it it's so correct that it's 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 unreadable almost so above everyone's head it's obscure right it's 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 correct but obscure and um I, but at the same time, I have to send out the, my warmest respects for the people that created that document, because it must have been a nightmare uh, and years and years of work and negotiation to get that down on paper. So it yeah. was an incredible first effort. But if you look, if you read the M3003 M3003 first and then try reading the gum, wow, you're going to see a big difference. I seem to remember Travis Grossman bringing that one up in that conversation with Henry, but yeah, you're Uh right. And and it's one of those things that, um, it does need to be broken down. And what I like about the direction that, uh, some of our individual disciplines are going like the one that we have temperature wise with, with, um, Martin de Groot is that they're talking about introducing those, those, contributors in level two and then doing a full budget for that discipline in level three. And so having some, someone there to help you along the way, which wasn't something I had, I was literally handed here's an Excel Excel file here, go through this and help us with the budget, you know? Yeah. Um, That's one of the reasons I can recommend uh, M3003 is because it will show you, it, it gives you some very simple examples of how do you construct a budget and what has to be in there and how do you enhance it and improve it? 
And to me, the, the thing to remember about uncertainty budgets is they're never perfect. They're, they're never true. They're never, they're never really correct. They're our best estimate given the the current situation. What is our, what's our measurement environment like? What are the contributors that are messing us up? And uh, can you think of any more? You can always think of more. You know, this, that's perfect. And, and uh, we're doing a brand new general metrology this year and yeah. we can actually, I, I, that's one of the main topics I want to talk to you about today. But before we get into that, let's, let's do the typical thing and, and let's talk about your background, let everybody get to know you um, okay. and, and give us, you know, what brought you into metrology? Uh, was it something that you knew about before getting into it? Or are you like all the rest of us that you kind of found yourself there one day? How did you get into metrology? Thank you. That's a great question. Um, I, I, when I graduated from college, I was not technical. Uh, I have an uh, undergraduate degree in history. So um, I was thrashing around. This was, I graduated in the 70s. Let's just say the early 70s. Um, I had no, uh, I had no idea what I was doing. It, it took me almost a decade to, to stumble into uh, the realization I got to go back to school and get some actual skills. And luckily, I could go to this place called Healed College in San Francisco, and I picked up a two-year uh, associate degree in electronics technology, and um, that was really helpful. So uh, from there, I stumbled over into. Um, Actually, I started out repairing uh, computer boards, and I mean not just swapping out boards, but finding the uh, the faulty individual device on a board that could be, uh, you know, they're big. They could have a lot of. They could have yes, it was component level repair, and uh, that was that was quite an education because I was not I was not prepared. I had to completely redo my thinking. I I was uh, very impatient. I thought I should be able to look at the situation and and analyze it using my brain and no other tools. And uh, I don't need to keep track of the steps I take. I should be able to figure this, what's wrong with this board, cold. And I couldn't do it. And I failed and I failed and I failed. Finally, I started writing stuff down. And finally, I started, I was forced to organize myself because I I had no other choice. Uh, I just wasn't fixing anything. And I was getting paid to fix stuff. So um, that was, uh, that was quite an education. That was quite a start. So I, I did that for about six years. Uh, I did three years in a repair depot doing just, uh, individual uh, component level repairs, got better and better and better at it. Then they kicked me out in the field and made me be a customer service engineer. Um, Yeah, so that's back to board swapping and glad heading the customer. So um, I did that for three years. Now, I was work. I was doing what's called a third party. So I wasn't working on our stuff. I was working on I was working on someone else's equipment with no schematics or maybe some old schematics and no idea what's happening on their board. So I was just board swapping. So did that for three years and then wandered over into an instrumentation job, mostly because the the commute was easier. I didn't want, I got tired of driving into San Francisco. 
Yeah, and instrumentation, many people don't know, is very similar to Cal. It, 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 there's a lot of overlap. So if some of your students are listening and they're thinking about either one of these two paths, there's a lot of overlap. So mm -hmm. um, I feel like, yeah, when I'm talking to your, your, your crew, uh, as often as not, my orientation is towards instrumentation as, as much as calibration. In fact, in some ways, uh, instrumentation is the daily realization of the stuff that calibrators only do once every six months or every year. Instrument guys are confronted with the same kinds of problems every day. So you keep your you keep your skills fresh. Right. So let's see. Okay, so that got me over into into biopharma, which was just taken off. Um, this was in the. Uh, early mid to late eighties, there was a few big biotechs that were starting to have uh, uh, incredible success. But um, this was before uh, big pharmas were even stepping in and buying them out. So um, oh. it was the wild west. It was, <laughs> it was completely wild. Uh, and uh, very, it was very interesting. Um, that was my first taste of a regulated industry. And uh, I, for your listeners, I need to say right now, um, my experience is it's very deep, but it's very narrow. I've spent almost my entire career in a regulated industry, which is uh, the, the biopharma or biotech industry. Um, it's a strange industry. Sure. Some of it's uh, incredibly advanced technically, and some of it is 30 years behind other industries. So it's that's what I want to talk to technicians about is how do you how do you land on your feet in this uh, in a job like that? How how do you survive and look? What do you look for to navigate in an atmosphere like that? And I'm sure I mean, every job is unique, but there's some overlaps we can talk about. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, I guess I guess to finish off, um, biotech but and big pharma as well as calibration can be very volatile. So um, the days of a technician graduating from your school and uh, working thirty years for the same employer and then getting a watch. That ain't happening anymore. I, I was last headcount for a real company around 2006 when I got laid off. Mm -hmm. um, so I was a contractor for the next 10 years. And so I can, we should probably also talk about what happens if someone offers you a job as a calibration contractor. I'd say jump on it. Yeah. So, oh, I, I think there's a lot of room in the industry, especially as we're growing people and getting people more specialized and getting them deeper training, there's a lot of entrepreneur opportunities. You know, imagine if yeah. somebody was really good at doing, you know, things like autoclaves or certain types of ovens and all that. There's so much work in that out there. Oh man. You would, yeah. or surface plates, you know, yep. there's, if you have the, if you have the startup capital, there's a lot of room to grow outside of the, the things that you're talking about, you know, and going into your own type of thing, you know, contracting or whatever. Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, the first calibration technician I encountered when I switched from being an instrument person to being uh, 
a, a biotech calibration person. Uh, his name was Ralph Sabile. Um, he was just out there with his little tool bag. I was out there with my little tool bag. He branched out, started his own calibration service pro- provision job, and turned it into a uh, turned it into a, a very large company that he he. He turned over and sold to somebody else and retired a rich guy. So that was really cool. Yeah, exactly. I ended up, uh, he left, and uh, I ended up working for him years later as a calibration lab manager. So, um, yeah, you, there's so many options available to you uh, with this skill set. And all you got to do is look around and see what people are doing. And um, there's lots of opportunities. And be willing to constantly learn. I mean, the the biggest thing yeah. that I've seen in this last two years with the school is people saying, "I don't need to. I I don't need any training." It's like, yeah, you do. You know, we all we all do. I didn't know how much I didn't know until I created the school. I'll tell you that much. Yeah. Well. I don't know. I wouldn't know what to say to someone who says I don't need any training. Um, you, it's true and it's not true. So uh, there's there is a place for people who want to hunker down, produce their numbers, uh, and just sure. just plug it in and go home. But um, it's risky to do that because there's there could be some changes coming that you could have seen, and uh, next thing you know, um, you're out of a job. It's an excellent point. Well, I, I, I'm glad I have you on at this particular time. As I was telling you before we started recording, we have, we're, we're redoing our, our general metrology section and that's kind of the, you know, the introduction to our students, to the, the world of metrology, right? Some of them might be taking this and they don't exactly know what they're getting into. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting to me that we're still in that, in that realm where people are hiring Hey, if they have mechanical experience, if they have electronic experience, if they have some something that we can convert into a calibrator, they're hiring them, right? Right. And so these people are being put into our school, generally not understanding what it is. So it's great that you're on because one of the things you want to talk about is measuring anything, the risk right. behind it. It's an estimate. Let how right. do we how do we describe to a brand new person? How do we get them from using a ruler in school, you know, where you thought everything is accurate to, that you go out there and get, uh, you know, you trust all the temperature sensors out there, the one on your bank, the one in your car, you know, you trust everything to going into that next step of being a metrologist and understanding that that action of measuring is an estimate. We're, uh, we're not sure completely about that measurement, right? How can we, right. how can we get people to understand that better at, from a beginner level? Okay, from a beginner level, um, let's talk about, let's go back over the ground we've already covered, which is there's some people who all they want to do is calibrations. And that's, that's wonderful, because there's always going to be a job for calibration people. But you will find is you if you look around and uh, look at people who are taking on more responsibility and earning more money, they're starting to acquire titles like a calibration engineer or metrologist. And uh, I know I, I'm positive that almost all the metrologists you will ever encounter are, for the most part, self-taught. 
And that's certainly true for me. There's there's very, very few places where you can go in the entire world and get a graduate degree in metrology. So if you want to help out your company and there's an opening that requires more responsibility uh, than someone who's just doing calibrations and then going home, um, the field is open, but you're going to have to teach yourself some stuff. And um, that... Um, uh, it took me a while to, to figure out how to do that. And one of the things I learned is when I learned some stuff about statistics or metrology, I may have to read the same damn thing 10 times in a row because I just don't understand what is this person trying to tell me? And sometimes there's a lot there and I just need to read it over and over and over again. So, um, I guess I would say the path that we're talking about and the path that leads from your school to jobs, uh, it may at times require a lot of energy on the part of your uh, students. So they need to always make a critical decision. Is this energy worth it to me? Or can I, uh, can I go in a different direction that's actually more entertaining and just as lucrative? Or nah, I, I, I see where they're going. I don't want to do that. So, um, having said that about uh, the fact that metrologists are mostly um, self-taught, uh, I could I want to say that there's some there's some fundamentals to what we're all talking about that apply universally. And uh, if you, if you have a couple of minutes, I want to talk about yeah. what are the universal attributes of all measurement. And um, so this is for people who are either in your school or just graduated. Um, all measurements are estimates. There's there's no there's no true measurement results possible on our planet. It's just it can't happen. And there's some fundamental reasons why it can't happen. So first of all, we we need to define a term. What do we mean by measurement? Um, if you want to, if we're going to get technical, we need to define. We need to help our listeners understand what's what area are we talking about. So when I say measurement, I'm talking about traceable measurements. So traceable measurements are ones that are backed up by the application of a, of a traceable standard that someone's watching over very carefully. And it's part of an independent system that a lot of people are watching over very carefully, including people on a national level. So that's what a measurement, that's what I mean when I say measurement. So even with all those really smart people standing behind it, every measurement is only an estimate. You could also say, and I've said it in the past, every measurement is wrong. And it's wrong because the standard that we applied is not true. It's our best estimate of what we're trying to what we're trying to talk about, but it's only ever an estimate. And we cannot overcome that. We can run away from it. We can deny it. We can deal with it. We can make some money on it. We can make write papers and contribute to it. We can go to the measurement science conference and have a great time. But we cannot over the, overcome the fact that all measurements are estimates and always will be. Right. That's just, that's it. So... I have to say, uh, there'll be plenty of people in your in your students' environment who are trying to convince them that this is not true. That uh, oh yeah, we need your measurement because uh, you're producing true data for us. Well, okay, 
You may not be able to convince them otherwise, and you may not think that that's a smart idea. Sometimes it's not a smart idea at all. But please don't get a swelled head when when you're when you're measuring measure, when you're measuring a temperature. God knows what you're really measuring. It's is you're you're wandering into a, a very um, a temperature, especially is is really uh, it's abstract. Mm-hmm. It's very abstract. So we, it's built up on a bunch of assumptions that everybody agrees to, but all it is is a bunch of assumptions. And you need to keep that in mind. You don't need to act on it every day. You don't need to impress everybody else that you know what these assumptions are. But for the sake of your own career, you need to keep that in mind, that these are assumptions and they can get violated. Sure. So I, I want to say one more thing. Uh, about the basics of uh, who your who your crew is when they graduate from your school, um, your students are have a unique position. They that's because they have a combination of uh, measurement understanding, and hopefully that's growing all the time as they as they either take classes provided by their employer or go out and teach themselves stuff that they're curious about. You have that. You also have process knowledge. In other words, when you go do a a cow for a customer, you need to understand what are they doing with this number? And the deeper you understand that, the more valuable you you can be to them. Because someday it may turn out that that particular measurement, everybody was agreeing as, hey, this is cut and dry. All of a sudden it becomes critical. And the day that measurement becomes critical, your calibration tech, you out there, Mr. Calibration Tech or Mrs. Calibration Tech, nobody can combine your process knowledge with your measurement science understanding. No one can beat that. People are going to depend on you for some guidance. And I need to issue a little caveat. Sometimes when you're in that position, you're also a scapegoat. So you need to understand the culture of the company you're working in. If you think that's a possibility, you need to take that into account. Well, I also want to emphasize what you were saying about you need to be self-taught. Yeah. I I talked to, um, I mean, I had a conversation with the technician this morning and he was talking about um, a me and they type attitude with his employer and yep. him out there on the road doing these calibrations. And I said, Hey, look, as much as you want to separate and keep yourself from the, 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 the responsibility there, you as a technician, you have responsibility that you can't put off on your employer because you are the person out there doing the measurement. You have to be confident for one, but also capable in your knowledge to make in-person determinations. It drives me crazy, Stephen, the the number of labs that I see putting their brand, like brand new within one or two year technicians, like brand spanking new guys out on on sites as full time and expect them to figure this stuff out on the road. That is that is a very, very tough position to find yourself in um, because you're so isolated. Uh, yeah, you're on the tip of the spear and the shaft of the spear is very long. So, yeah, that's a very tough position to be in. And it requires a certain uh, a certain strength and uh, skill set. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't uh, personally I wouldn't want to do that. And I I have done it and I have 
suffered from feeling like, damn, I, I'm pretty isolated out here. I'm the uh, I'm the designated scapegoat. I don't have. They're not giving me the tools to solve this problem, and yet I'm responsible. So um, yeah. not only the 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 remote customer feels I'm responsible, my boss says I'm responsible too. So if you're good at that, you're a star. If you aren't good at it. Tell your boss, here's what I need to thrive in this position. Mm-hmm. And if they can't deliver that to you, word to the wise. Well, the thing we're, we're kind of looking at is because if we do a certified on-site technician or, I, you know, I don't know what the wording there would be. We've been talking about that with people in our advisement circles and everything. And we're talking about a level three technician. So someone that's been out there considerably, not someone level one, you know, that's not what we, you know, the people that have been out there feel is appropriate for sending someone that's a level one, level two person out there on their own. Right. Uh, You know, I, I would turn and then once more address your students. Some of the problems you will confront are not, technical problems they they come to you uh dressed as a technical problem what you're confronting is a political problem a a business problem a finance problem a qa problem you cannot solve those from your position so you need to be aware of what can you do and what do you need to not waste time trying to fix that you cannot fix and again when you're remote um, you're more isolated, and you're more likely when you when you encounter that particular confusing situation, you're gonna have you're gonna have a hard time finding resources to help you, and it can happen. And you're gonna have pressure. I mean, that's when you have most resources is when the customer needs it the most. I I love right. what you brought up there, simply because these guys are on their own. And when they do have that face in front of them, you know, a lot of times that's when these tech, the, the ones that I've seen that will falsify calibrations or will just what we call in the, the industry, licking them and stick them, you know, where they're just putting on the yeah. sticker and saying it's good. It's yeah. those situations where the pressure's there. There is no help. They're on their own. Okay, fine. It's, it's good. It's usually good. It's right. uh, every other year it's been good. Why would it be bad this year? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, strangely enough, I, I left I left Biopharma for five years and worked uh, worked in wastewater doing doing calibrations and instrumentation in wastewater. And I I had a chance to re to return to uh, biotech because of a situation where one of the technicians in a particular uh, delicate position in the company was um, falsifying records. Mm-hmm. Most of the technicians, this was back when a crew of calibration people could be 15 or 20 strong. Right. And uh, 19 of these guys were doing 150 cows a month. There was one guy doing 500 cows a month. And uh, they finally caught him because he used a, uh, it was a Fluke 2180, which was an old style uh temperature uh, measuring device he 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 signed a calibration uh, record form saying i used this particular 2180 to make these measurements while that particular 2180 w- was in puerto rico and he was in Oops. uh he was in california they fired him yeah 
Oh. Well, I had to, I had to come in behind that guy and explain to his customer that no, we are not capable of providing um, accuracy and temperature for your fermenters down to less than a tenth of a degree Fahrenheit. Wow. That it, it's not possible. Yeah, here's yeah. what I can here's what I can give you. I can give you probably eight tenths of a degree. How about that? And he wasn't happy. It, it really pissed them off. But, you know, really, when you go to that same customer and, I, and you ask them, where does your temperature tolerance comes from? All of a sudden, you get some blank expressions and you find out they don't know where it comes from. So I need every bit of tolerance you can give me. But I really don't know the outside, uh, param the outside of this parameter that's actually going to wreck things. So um, that's another thing that new technicians should be aware of. The tolerances that you inherit, some of them are rock solid. Some of them are pretty much BS. Right. And, and your, your, the accuracy, accurate, I'm using air quotes, everyone, accuracy of your standards, you know, that you're taking on site, you know, and the, the uncertainties that are calculated at right. home at the lab are much different than when you're on site, you know, you, you're right. adding uncertainties. And if you're not familiar with what those are and what to look out for, you can, you can have some big disparities. Right. That's why I would again recommend M3003 because that lets you dip your toe into the way, how do you conceive of and deliver uncertainty statements? What, how do things contribute? How does the math work for a contributor to uncertainty? So, and you'll see, you know, you could, you could add another 10 uncertainty contributors Um they just come from everywhere. The harder you look, the more you find them. And if that doesn't drive you crazy, you're doing good. What do you think about my theory that uh, in some ways we need to have uncertainties determined and, and discussed per discipline? And yes, there is crossover between, but it seems like it, it can be very discipline, you know, discipline oriented in the calculation. Of course, you know, the hottest and the most sensitive topic being resolution, you know, things like that. Yeah. Well, here's my feeling. I come from a, I come from a, a business sector that doesn't, uh, that operationally does not recognize measurement uncertainty. It, hmm. it, it, it's unheard of. So you won't find it in any SOP. So my feeling is in general, any attempt to, to discuss and teach yourself more about uncertainty and uh, work, if you have to work in the background without any recognition, go ahead. All discussions of uncertainty are an improvement over a situation where we don't talk about that. That doesn't exist in pharma. There is no uncertainty. Because, why? Because it's not in any SOPs. Mm -hmm. The FDA never talks about it. Why should we talk about it? So, I'd have to say, uh, on the face of it, a, uh, a discipline-by-discipline discussion of uncertainty is a hell of a lot better than nothing. Sure. Yeah. Well, it, it, I, I'm saying in, in instead of the argument between, you know, saying – Oh, yeah. Sometimes I feel like the arguments are for people are saying it doesn't apply to what they do. And so – and in some cases, there is merit to that, you know, and, and again, yes, I don't want to get – I don't want to get deep into that on this discussion, but I, I like when you bring up business sector because it does 
it does affect right. your view on the entire on the entire spectrum. I know people that have they came from the military systems, which I came from. You yep. speak of FDA and all those and pharma not dealing with uncertainties. Neither did we. We did tar, you know, four to right. one ratio. But then now, right. if you talk, you know, I talk with them. I had Ginger Hazard on the or Ginger Montez. Sorry, I remember I've known her for a long time. That was her maiden name. But when you talk to them, you know, uh, when you talk to the military now. Now yeah. they're aware of it. Now they're incorporating it. Now they're starting to to work on those things. I think right. it will come around the corner as well, especially some of those that don't have it in the past. I think in the future they probably will. Um, by the way, if Ginger is actually listening to this, I loved uh, the segment you did with her. What I liked about her was um, she's a systems thinker. Mm-hmm. And not everybody, not everybody can do that. And it takes some training and some reading and some discipline to do systems analysis. So I was, I was very impressed with her. And um, she just brought a lot of uh, systems analysis leads to common sense. Mm-hmm. And common sense isn't so common. You know what I, I, I compare her in a lot of ways in, in, in some of those, um, like you're saying systems thinking similar to like right. Greg Sanker, you know, he right. comes in with a lot of analysis and you mentioned statistics earlier on, you know, he looks yeah. at statistics and Cal labs in a whole way that I've never heard of before, Yeah, you know? And so, yeah, certain people, they have those knacks and I think they're very valuable for the industry. And it, I, I do too. It, it, yeah. I was glad she brought up a lot of those things because, yeah, you know, we've been talking about the civilian or the the commercial sector in the what what we call the civilian sector, it 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 does have some needs in the management training as well. And I'm not talking about management as far as business management. I'm talking about right. lab management and and yep. actually understanding how to properly run a laboratory. Yep. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I have to be honest and say my six months running a calibration laboratory was pretty much of a failure. Uh, I I thought I was getting a job where I was at last going to be able to talk about how do we implement measurement uncertainty. And I found instead, no one gave a damn about that. What they really had a hard time with was operational management. And um, it drove me crazy. Finally, uh, they they let instead of firing me, they said we're going to let you go back to your old job back over at, uh, at Novartis, which was another biotech, and you'll still work for us, but um, you're going to do um, on on site calibration support for for stuff like pipettes and uh, and masses, and make sure they get sent out to Transcat or whatever. So, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there can be there can be mismatches all over the place. Um, running a calibration laboratory, uh, it's difficult. One of the problems is the same thing you you alluded to earlier. That uh, some of your customers, all they want is that sticker, mm-hmm. and that's all they want. In fact, um, one of my old bosses used to joke, you know, we could become our own profit center if we just started selling calibration stickers on on the side. So yeah, we'll come to your lab and we'll do the cal and we'll do the paperwork. But for an extra 50 bucks, we'll sell you the calibration sticker and you fill it out yourself. He was joking, of course, because he was a very ethical person. 
Uh, by the way, he was the guy that fired the the guy that was Luke lying about the twenty one eighties. So he he was uh, he was acknowledging the fact that some of the calibration lab uh, customers that's all they want. They're just fulfilling a requirement. They don't want to know anything more about what you're doing. If you try and educate them about uncertainties and decision rules, they really don't give a damn. They don't have yeah. time for it. You're right. Yeah. And, and that that is going to be one of our, all of our, I mean, all of us in the field, a challenge yeah. for a long time. You know, and, and yes. of course, like I've, I've mentioned, we're doing some projects that are trying to bring awareness to the, the general public and everything, but we have, we all have to be honest with ourselves. It is still measurements and will yep. people believe in Cause there is a lot of it too. Um, you know, it, 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 not only with things that are good, but you know, those times that you show up and something is finally bad and, and people yeah. have a hard time believing it. And, and, <laughs> It's a, it's a weird field to be in, you know, a lot of people, it is, doubt, it's very weird. That, yeah. It's very, it's yes. That's what I'm trying to address is that it has some unusual aspects. Um, I, I touched, I tried to touch on that earlier where I talked about what's, what's biotech, what's biopharma like. Uh, it's some of some parts of the industry are incredibly advanced. Like they're talking about gene splicing. They're talking about um, taking over the gene, the genetic information of a uh, of a cell, rewriting it, and then putting it to work. Uh, I call that as close to black magic as I ever want to get. Yeah. Other places, they don't acknowledge that measurement uncertainty even exists. So as calibration technicians. You need to land on your feet and look around and figure out, is this a good match for me? Where can I find people who need what I want to do? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you can find them. They're everywhere, but you got to find them. Well, yeah, there's a lot more. If you've been, if you've been working in the field for a while and all that you've been doing is torque <laughs> or, you know, one, one thing for your lab, you know, there is, there is a lot more to the industry. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I can't even estimate the, the, the breadth of my knowledge over calibrations, but it's not more than about two or 3%. Um, and then you've got um, initiatives like uh, Qubit. Are you aware of Qubit? Yeah, I, I actually am uh, here in the near future, hopefully going to have those, some of their representatives on to talk oh, about yeah. the project. Yeah. Yeah. Get them on because uh, Qubit is incredible um, for let's just get, let's just get our ground underneath us. When we're talking about Qubit um, they're going out and trying to capture a, a version of every single data sheet that exists in the world. And um, they estimate there's two or 3 million unique data sheets available. Um, and if you want to do a cow, you can't do a cow without a data sheet. And uh, right. they want to provide this for free out on the web. Now, I'm sure they'll, they'll, they'll charge for aftermarket uh, services. But uh, when I started in this industry, that, that wasn't even dreamed of. That right. wasn't even dreamed of. So yeah, things are changing very rapidly. Um, yeah, Qubit is a is a very it's a very cool idea, and um, you see people monetizing something that didn't used to exist a very short time ago. So yeah, it's it's exciting and it's scary. 
<laughs> so what were I read your your article talking about it. So you think that they'll maybe monetize the the uh, and I guess I, I guess I can ask them. I don't know if I'll ask them. <laughs> well, I guess yeah. this is going public anyway. But uh, yeah. you know, is if it's like some sort of um, what advanced search features and stuff like that. You know. Yeah. Well, one thing, the first thing I would do if I was them and I'm not them and they, uh, they send me an email every once in a while telling them, telling me what their progress is towards getting their 3 million data sheets. But I would guess that one of the add-on services that they would be willing to apply is uh, uncertainty analysis. Hmm. That would be, that would be a tremendous a uh, service they can provide and one that they very certainly should charge for because the tip because typically the people that need those data sheets work within organizations that would would like to entertain the idea of uncertainty analysis but don't have the horsepower right yeah don't so, they don't have a way of developing these things on their own in any way right yeah. Right. So they they may be working in Excel. They may be working on a platform. Most platforms that manage calibration certainly don't do calibration analysis and certainly don't do it very well. So, um, yeah, Qubit could add that on as an add-on and say, look, uh, for 15 bucks a month, we'll, we'll start tracking uh, the data that you generate with our free data sheets and we'll start giving you some hints about hey you're in trouble here or you're golden you don't have to sweat a thing interesting yeah i'm, I'm excited to to talk with them and maybe i'll yeah, chat with you absolutely. offline with, with some good questions yeah well, i just wanted um, to, I, you know i come from the the aspect of all these you know we have all these new people and and even people that have been around for a while going through our course Having, having them be aware of all the stuff that's going on, it's very beneficial. Yeah. And it again, it's the Wild West. How do you even find out about this? You just stumble across it and or you go, you listen to a podcast that's really cool like this one. Um, and you start yes. picking up things like, what the hell are they talking about? What's Qubit? By the way, it's C-U-B-Y-T. C-U-B-Y-T. So for your listeners. And it's it's mainly supported by Fluke. And to me, Fluke is one of the foremost um, quality service providers in any industry. I, I just think they're fantastic. But they got to make money. So yeah. let them go. Yeah very, yeah, very similar to the school. I'd love to do the school stuff for free, but... It, it, that's just yeah. impossible. You can't do it. By the way, um, I want to, I, I want to go back to you're mentioning Greg Sinker. Um, mm -hmm. I, Greg is one of the people that I've looked up to, and I want to talk to your new, your new students about how, how did I encounter Greg? One of the things you, you guys as students may get involved in is buying an application for calibration management. And I, that's how I encountered Greg is because I work for a company that we convinced them, we, you can't do this from this platform. You need an application to manage these calibrations. And somehow we convinced them. And then even more luckily, we encountered the company that Greg worked for at the time, which was uh, an, a little offshoot of Southern California Edison. And Southern California Edison, their calibration function got so big that they started writing their own applications to run their function. And then they said, hell, 
why don't we sell this? It was so hard to put it together and so expensive. Maybe we can make some money selling this to other people. That's how I encountered Greg. So wow. he was part of the team selling this application. And I'm proud to say we bought it. So um, that's really cool. Yeah. Uh, and the way, the way Greg opened my eyes was uh, until I encountered Greg, I had very little real true understanding of how uh, distributions work for statistics. I was starting to get, dip my toe into it, but I believed at the time that the more data, the better. So I thought the uh, a normal distribution, a way of portraying all calibrations, including who was the tech, what was the actual data point, I thought that was far superior to other ways of portraying the same uh, the same general landscape. Now, Greg's product used a different distribution, and I said, "Greg, why do you use um, why do you use the binomial distribution to tell people, hey, your your calibrations are doing great, or you got a problem? How, why do you, why don't you use normal data?" And he told me, he said. See, here's why. And he explained it to me. Uh, it would be a whole new episode for me to explain it to you guys. But when he told me why, it just, it was electrifying. I got, I, I, it made me realize there's so much more to statistical distributions than I ever understood. And he just, he just said it. And what he said was one or two sentences. And I was like, OMG. Well, now Nobody we need said, to know oh, what he said. I understood exactly what he said, but it made me see how uh, dim my understanding had been up to that point. It didn't help us to buy the product because I couldn't go to my boss's boss and tell him what Greg told me because they didn't give a they didn't give a damn about that. But it it was an incredible experience for me, and it just electrified and made me made me just be much more have much bigger appetite for teaching myself even more metrology and that was i have never forgotten that experience that was that was incredible so thank you greg well and uh that that component is something we're looking at because statistics it, I, I know there's a bunch of people that when we start talking about that stuff, they start groaning, like, don't make this yep. about, but yep. it is, it, it is a huge part of metrology. <laughs> and if we understand it more and we teach it, then it will become right. less, um, less of a problem to do it on a regular basis, you know? Yep. I do know. Um, that's why, again, I will recommend M3003 because it'll, it'll let you dip your toe into statistical analysis, but it's so clear about here's why we have to do this. And here, uh, there is no other option. We either do this or we just throw up our hands and walk away and say, eh, let somebody else figure this out. So um, yeah, statistics is extremely challenging for everybody. And um, I'll tell you, my viewpoint of why that is, is because the, hum the human species evolved under the conditions of uh, Darwinian evolution. Mm -hmm. Darwinian evolution did not point us towards understanding statistics. It pointed us towards being biased about statistics. So every time you try to learn anything about statistics, you have to overcome a biological bias. And it's very difficult. It is very difficult. Can be painful. Oh, especially because the way people write it, lots of them write it because they don't want you to understand it. They want you to be impressed and listen, just accept whatever they say because they just said it. 
Well, right. you know what? No, that doesn't work. It and sometimes the work. truth, sometimes the truth behind the the statistics is what's painful. Is that what you mean by we're genetically dis, disposed to be to have that bias? Is because it protects us in some ways. Yes, statistics uh, can be very brutal if you look at. Oh, them. yeah. Well, imagine a, a, an early uh, one of our forebears. He's walking along in the uh, the the plains of Africa because he hasn't even left to go to other continents yet, and he hears a rustling in the bushes. Now, if he if he was objective statistically, he'd say, you know, I hear some rustling in the bushes, but my in is very low. I need I need some data here. Uh, uh, there's a risk, but the risk is I'm not going to get enough data to make the right decision. Um, let me get a bigger in. Next thing you know, he's being eaten by <laughs> by some animal that was rustling those bushes. Yeah. So yeah, if Makes that sense. was the way we were we worked, we wouldn't be here. So yes, we were we appeared in our present form talking to each other on Zoom because we had a bias towards a, a particular bias towards data. We preserve that in our genetic code. If we want to overcome that, we can. People people do it all the time. That's what science is, but it's a fight. Well, it and, is. And, it's a fight. And everybody, we talked about this the last episode. You know, technicians want things to pass. Customers obviously want things to pass. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So well, you know what? Go ahead. Oh no, go go ahead and finish that last. I want to I want to drag in um, a military based data quality anecdote. As I was telling you before we start recording, uh, I'm a Navy brat. My father uh, was, uh, he worked for the Bureau of Weapons in the Navy. One of our duty stations was in Newport, Rhode Island on a uh, island called Goat Island in the middle of Newport Harbor. On Goat Island was the old Naval Torpedo Factory that, that produced the Mark 14, which the United States was using at the beginning of World War II. It had been developed between the wars. Okay, well, they 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 stepped up production of the Mark 14 because that's what they had available. They started arming subs and they sent these crews out in the Pacific with the Mark 14. It took them two years to find out that not only did the uh, did the exploder head for the warhead not always work, but it was miscalculated. the the device was miscalibrated by, uh, calibrated by about 12 feet. So that meant that when the sub crew lined up a shot against a, a, a Japanese target, chances are that torpedo is going right underneath the boat. Unfortunately, since um, they used uh, a propulsion system that created bubbles, that shot created a direct line back to the sub. So oh, yeah. for two years, for two years, um, they sent out crews. And those guys never came back. Yikes. And that's one of the problems with being on a sub. There's not very many on-the-job injuries. Either you come back together or you don't come back at all. And we'll never know what portion of the people that didn't come back didn't come back because of that miscalibration. And it took the Bureau of Weapons two years to admit, you know what? You guys are right. And wow. um they, they recalibrated and uh, eventually started having very high success rate with that, that improved device. So 
That's one of the situations I want to talk to new technicians about. You can be in a situation where what you're doing is not deemed critical. It's just automatic. Just plug it in, go on to the next one, plug it in, go on to the next one. All of a sudden, you may find yourself with critical critical knowledge about a process that is life or death for, for people. And yeah. um, it happens. So um, you need to be prepared. Not a lot of, not a lot of um, things come in the door with, you know, warnings that, Hey, this is super critical, you know, or the, right. the risks here are, right. are life critical. You, you really don't right. get the notice. You have to treat everything as if it, this measurement actually matters. Right. Well, um, and that's that's one of the characteristics of biopharma is, is despite the fact that um, they ignore measurement uncertainty, absolutely, they also are quite willing to decide more and more measurements are critical. So pretty soon you're working in a plant with two or three, 5,000 instruments. Every one of them is critical, which means every one of them has to be written up as a, a an out of tolerance. If you ever find it out of tolerance, you got to go through all sorts of paperwork. But actually, nothing has changed. If they really believe that this thing was crucial for uh, the public health of the U.S. consumers, they'd act differently. But right. it's completely disconnected from reality. So you'll have your QA department saying every measurement in this plant is critical. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, you got to fill out all these forms. That's really? what we mean. I've seen. Okay. It. Yeah, I have too. Every out of tolerance. That's, yeah, the, and that's you know going back to what we were talking about you know twenty minutes ago where technicians are under that pressure and they're on their own. There's a lot of times it's because of those things is why they're right. under pressure for something not to fail too. Right. Um, yeah, I often I often thought that the entire calibration crew, two, three, eighteen people, didn't actually work for the facilities group that whose name was on our check. We actually work for the QA department and right. the QA department dictated you will do this cal twice a year. Okay. So what, what are two data points a year? How do they help you understand the behavior of your process? They don't. Right. Two data points a year doesn't help a damn thing. It helps you sit through an FDA audit and say, we're compliant with our own SOP. But the FDA is not going to say, well, does this data really help you with this process? Does it does it improve um, product quality in a way you can demonstrate to us? No, they're not going to ask you that question. They're going to ask you, are you adhering to your own SOPs? And the answer is, yeah. Wow, that's mad. There you go. It, it, yeah, it is. It can be it can be frustrating. So again, let me go back to being to a positive message. If you find yourself in that situation as a technician, find the people that can use what you have to say. Don't complain to the head of QA about this situation. They don't give a damn. They have right. other problems. Find the people that you can help move their little program forward as they work on improving this situation. Otherwise, you're just going to be you're going to be really frustrated. That's a really good, that's a really good point for, for new technicians, especially those that are getting thrown out there because I've, I've been in it and I was a, a senior technician by that point where, you know, sometimes you are explaining 
what's wrong, what's going on. And that person is just the owner of a process, not right. That doesn't actually care about the end result. Like you were saying. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That is important. Very important. Well, you know, I also feel like part of this is the responsibility of the quality manager, uh, lab managers, find your customers. If, if your per- current customer only cares about compliance and you suspect there's someone else in that company who could make better use of what you're doing, forge a connection with them. Go, just either that or you're just doing cut and dried, cut and dried, cut and dried, cut and dried. Yeah, you're, you're waiting for uh, an ugly surprise. And if you wait long enough, you'll get that ugly surprise. Well, I think I think there may maybe some people listening to this, Stephen, that realizes, oh, all this time I've been working in a situation that maybe isn't normal or right. what it's supposed to be. So right. I guess what we're saying, because we're we're getting close to the end of the time here, I think okay. some good things. Let's encapsulate some good some of this let's. stuff because it was really good. Let's. I think it's important, like you were saying, to to be comfortable in your situation and forge connections that your data, the the work that you're doing will matter. And that is a, a, a very valuable lesson to take uh from that. We also, you know, in the in the beginning, um you know, talking about that measurements are estimates. And those of you that right. are new to calibration, trying to wrap your head around what you do, you you have standards that have closer to the real estimate than than not, right? Right. We're, we're, right. You're trying to compare with something that we all generally agree upon, like like Stephen was saying. But getting your head wrapped around that whole concept that you are not working with precise things in, in this world, you have to get right. away from that assumption that everything is true and accurate and <laughs> get to where <laughs> to the sad realization yeah. that everything around you is nothing is the same. Nothing is, is right. perfectly accurate. Right. But as you go, you'll, you'll single out people like uh, Jeff and Greg, they just, they exude a quality that you can trust in other words, you listen to Jeff Gus talk about uh, what Fluke is doing, or you talk, listen to Greg. If you're going to trust anybody, you might decide to trust those guys or trust your own people. There are people who are working as hard as they can, who are extremely intelligent, who are making progress. Find those people. Or, or, or you can give up and just say, uh, Nothing, nothing is true. Uh, I'm in the wrong industry. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Or, or you might have to find a, a different laboratory. Right. So, so there are, unfortunately at this point, there are laboratories that, that are going to burn out technicians and, and they are yep. revolving door laboratories. Those exist yep. right now. Right. You know, I just realized, um, a, a, qual- a, a quality lab manager, sh- would be a, a great person to grab on the qubit because he's going to save hundreds of hours a year on the part of his technicians when he forces them to write new SOPs for new equipment coming into their lab. So, it, uh, yeah, there's there's so many connections that are possible. Um, you just got to keep your eyes open and uh, and be positive 
and um, look for those connections. They are there. Well, and I mean, and this is something I'll definitely get in with the Cuba guys on. One thing to realize out there is a lot of you are in labs that they're using like GuideUp and, and they're trying to utilize military procedures or other procedures that right. the military purposely did not calibrate to the full manufacturer specs or the correct right. accuracies. Like, right. This this project at Qubit is going to be much more aligned to what is typical rather than, you know, utilize what I guess what I'm getting at is a lot of labs are just kind of winging it, you know, like you said, Wild West out there and and right. a lot of things are in the work right now. And this isn't just the right. sign calibration school, as we mentioned, the Qubit team, you know, some of these uh, European committees that are getting the digital uh, certificates together, you know, that down the road could connect with our accreditation or I mean, our certification so that on certificates, you know, who did it yep. is linked and their training. And, you know, there's a lot of things that are coming to a head, you know, and, right. and it has come from all those years of what you and I have talked about during this hour of right. this stuff hasn't been happening and people just rely on data sheets from military procedures or in a wing in it, you know, however, right. you, you know, utilizing someone that, Hey, I found this one in a notebook, you know, from a, right. a friend yeah. of mine, you know, it must be better than nothing. Cause that's what we had before. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm glad, very glad that part of my career included uh, training as a quality engineer through the ASQ. And one of the things quality engineers say is this system is perfect. You may not like it, but it's the sum total of every possible input from every possible person. If you don't like the way it's performing, you need to acknowledge this is how it got built up is with the current um, with the, the current inputs. Mm -hmm. If you want to change the output, look at what the inputs are, decide which ones you want to keep and and which ones you suspect you might be able to do without and start playing around with it. Because the situation we have is composed of things that are really great for getting us here, but some of them aren't going to carry us forward. And right. it's up to us to decide which is which. Well, and, and uh, like you said at the very beginning of the show, you're talking to the future of the industry, right? We're, we're, we're trying to address the, 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 those coming in and hopefully we'll get people coming into this industry and learning right from the beginning, moving their way forward and making changes, you know, cause I definitely, I feel a lot of what you're saying, you know, in the end, looking at what I've seen out there in the industry, there's a lot of places that have been marking time that have been sitting in place. Right for decades and it's yep. it's time to move it's time to move forward yep. I, I do want to mention um next time hopefully we can have you on again you were i, I do want to get into measurement assurance you know ver versus the you know the measurement uncertainty i think that's really interesting of course uh, maybe, maybe that's something we can discuss down the road so yeah risk um yeah all measurements incur risk so yeah, the, the field of, of risk analysis and measurement assurance, uh, I'd say relative to uh, straight ahead measurement uncertainty analysis is far less mature. Uh, 
and far more open to new ideas that you could try out. Let's model this and see what happens because it's uh, it's much softer, it's much less understood, but it's it's really really important. Right. We're, will we get there? <laughs> Do you think we'll get there? I think I I at least think that there's enough people trying to to look at the stuff and make change. The the question is, are we going to be able to get all of the false players or the the the, the bad actors out there to right? Like, how are well, we going to get everybody interested? We're not. That's that's another ugly truth about calibration. Is not everybody's interested in it. You don't want to go to the CEO of your corporation and grab a hold of them and explain why calibration is critical. It's. It's not critical to that guy. You have to figure out how am I going to deliver this and and make a contribution without convincing the entire world that there's nothing in the world but calibration because it's not true. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, it, it will be good luck to us, right? Well, good luck Stephen, to us. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, but uh, Stephen, it's been it's been a pleasure. I, I I feel like we could just keep chatting for yeah. for another hour. Oh yeah. Um, uh, yeah. how can people get a hold of you? Is, is there anything in particular that, uh, well, I did say at the beginning, I, I do want people to read your, the, the things that you write is, is LinkedIn the best place to do that? Is that the only place you post your writing? It, it is. I used to have a website. I got tired of getting, uh, uh, emails from people who wanted me to improve my SEO analysis. So oh, yeah. I, I can it used, to, it used to be stephenpereer.com. So yeah, um, look me up on uh, YouTube where I've done a bunch of videos, oh, right. maybe 30 of them, or look me up on uh, LinkedIn. So LinkedIn is my primary platform. I uh, I will respond to LinkedIn messages. I will respond to LinkedIn invitations to, to hook up. I would be delighted to talk to anybody that wants to talk to me. Are you, are you in follower mode yet on LinkedIn so people can just follow you or do they need to yes. connect with you? Yes. No, okay. they can follow me. Perfect. Yeah. So look, look up Steven on LinkedIn. I I'm telling you the, I enjoy, and I try and catch as much of, of the articles you put out because it, it puts a much more interesting spin and makes you really think like, I, I like that it's not the, the same stuff, but I don't feel overwhelmed by your material either, but there have been a few topics that I'm like, woof, that's a, that's a hard one. Well, Please feel free to say, dude, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Oh, no, in, in, in a way that I, I, I don't know everything. There's some areas that I'm, I'm weak on still, you know, I'll be taking some of our own training down the road, you know, just so that I can keep up to date with some things. Ryan, this has been a tremendous experience for me because it really forced me to um, ditch the stuff that would be extraneous to new technicians. Uh, they may stumble on it for themselves. They may not. They have their own path. But um, uh, it's just been a tremendous experience for me to sort of boil boil down what I've learned to a few things that uh, I think are true for everybody and right. might be valuable to someone starting out because uh, it's a it's a it's a very cool industry if you don't weaken. <laughs> right. And and if you're stuck in certain areas, it can be horrible too. You know, yeah, and that's not normal. I want people to yeah. know that. Yeah. I, I love what you said. If you're not happy, if you're not engaged, definitely move on to something, to something else. 
There's a, a big world out there, and, and uh, I, I definitely down the road I'm gonna a part of that YouTube project. I want to focus on the different areas that you can go into, like you were saying, instrumentation, especially in some of those industries like gas and and uh, yeah. oil and all that. Great growth opportunities. So yep, yep, yeah. Just what you see in your industry is definitely not true on the other side of the fence. Things might be a lot worse. They might be a lot better, and um. If you if you use some critical thinking and and some networking, you can get some some pretty good ideas of what's going on somewhere else. Exactly. Well, Stephen, thank you once again. It has been a, it was pleasure. a pleasure, and I hope you I hope we get to hear from you again. I would be delighted. I, I as I said, I enjoyed the hell out of this. This is great. Awesome. Thank you again. <laughs>